Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. All right, welcome everybody. Now, one of the biggest challenges that I've heard repeatedly, both in interviews in this series on regenerative agriculture, as well as with peers and clients that I've collaborated with, is the difficulty for aspiring farmers to get access to land. Now, this is true back in the States, as well as Europe, and in other parts of the world that I've traveled. And it's part of a much larger problem in the trends of land ownership that reduce land to a commodity. Now, as prices for land soar and the rapidly aging population of farmers struggle to keep their businesses afloat, we're entering into a tipping point. Massive amounts of land are now set to change ownership in the coming decades, and the hands that they'll end up in are yet to be determined. Though from what I can tell, there's no shortage of young and motivated people looking to get into farming, but this land ownership issue is keeping many of them from getting started. Now, I've been looking for a while at creative approaches to farmland access and tenure, and in my search, I found Ian McSweeney, the organizational director of the Agrarian Trust, through his role in organization and advocating for a return to community-owned land and common land management. Now, far from being a new or a novel approach to land stewardship, these forms of management are much older than private ownership and might just hold the key to large-scale landscape regeneration by returning this precious resource to the whole community. Now, Ian's career and his life's work have been focused on the human connection to soil and food. He first worked as a social worker focusing on developing outdoor experience-based education programs, and later he sought more direct work with the connections to soil and food in real estate, by founding a brokerage and consulting company to focus on prioritizing conservation, agriculture, and community within typical land development. Most recently, he served as executive director for the Russell Foundation, a private foundation focused on assisting landowners and farmers through customized approaches to farmland ownership, conservation, management, and stewardship. Ian has also participated in many farmland and food system initiatives and has served as a consultant to a number of organizations. He was also recognized as a 40 under 40 leader in New Hampshire and was also selected for the Leadership Institute at Food Solutions New England. Now in this interview, Ian speaks about farmland transfer, conservation, secure tenure, and fundraising models across the U.S., 
He also gives inspiring examples of the first handful of members from across the country that are blazing a new trail for communities invested in their agricultural future and the diversity of people who steward their farms. This is just one potential way to bring land equity back to the commons, and I'm still very interested in exploring other models and ways for a whole new generation of people looking to care for the natural capital that we share to gain affordable access to land. So if you know of any other ideas and organizations that are working on these issues, please reach out to me through my email at infoabundantedge.com or come and join the conversation on our dedicated Facebook page. I'm really looking forward to bringing more voices on these topics to the podcast. So with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Ian. Hey, Ian, thanks so much for taking time to be on the podcast today. How are you doing? You're welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, doing well. Nice. Well, look, so there's, we've, we've been exploring so many different topics in this kind of series and exploration of regenerative agriculture. And what you're going to be talking about today is a really key piece because we're at a unique point in time with access to land and the commoditization of especially agricultural land. But before we get started, how did you personally become interested in making farmland available to more people? Yeah, well, I've always uh, been focused on human disconnection from land and feeling that we are disconnected from land, we're disconnected from each other, and from that flows so many social and cultural issues we face. So working to reconnect us to land has always been my passion and work, and I've had a career in social work, uh, real estate, philanthropy, uh, so really different areas to support people's reconnection to land, all under the framework that really food and the production of food and stewardship of the earth that, that nurtures that food is universal. So connecting people to land or reconnecting people to land through food and through agriculture is a, a really needed and viable opportunity for us to engage in. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So tell me first about the current crisis in agriculture and around all agricultural ownership and management. Yeah, so well, so speaking to you from United States context, um, and it you know it's there's similarities across the globe, and there's also individual unique characteristics local to place, but really across the United States, uh, land ownership tenure and equity are completely unjust. Uh, and they're also at a point in time, given the demographics of farmland owners, that 400 million acres of farmland are transitioning in the United States right now. Um, so we're in a massive transition of farmland within a structure that's unjust. And that unjust structure, um, 98% of farmland is owned by white Europeans. Uh, majority of farmland is owned by non-farmers. Uh, majority of farmland is owned by people over 75. Um, farmland values in this country continue to increase uh, state to state and nationally. Year over year, the market value of farmland increases. And yet year over year, the uh, net proceeds of farms regionally and across the country continues to decrease. So we here in the United States have a lot of farmland owned by non-farmers. And, and the fact that it's owned by non-farmers uh, restricts, limits, and prohibits 
farmers and others from connecting to and getting equity in that land. Well, so I know it gets a little bit messy when we go into history of how it came to be owned this way, but can you maybe summarize about how, first of all, land was grabbed from the original native owners here and how sort of the structural, let's say, elements that uh, that secured wealth in the hands of a few people has led to this point that we have where it's it's much more expensive than often the money that can be made off of it. Yeah. Yeah, there's right. So some to the history, you know, there's a um, long and deep history and and others are really their work is focused on that and, and bringing light to the truth and reality that exists that we uh, many times ignore. But just to touch on just just the point you brought up that, right, you know, we, we constructed a private property system of ownership of land in this country. Um, having stolen that land and uh, moved people off of that land, we, we then created this system of ownership that then has perpetuated over time and consolidated ownership around wealth, uh, given the increased value of land uh, and the kind of limited capacity for those to acquire land, given limited capacity for access to capital, uh, you know, connection to land, all these other things that really, you know, the, the gross injustice started when we stole land and claimed our own ownership and then uh, brought forward a definition of stewardship that was simply putting up a sign and telling people what they can and cannot do on land. It seems too that the the mentality behind how the land was acquired is a big part of the mentality behind how it's been abused for so long too and how there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of responsibility for the condition that it's left in when it passes hands or when it's sold or even when it goes into um, the children of the people who own it as well. And what are some of the ways now that we can start to change this system towards one that revalues the land as a sort of a vehicle for ecosystem services, as well as the food that can be produced on it? Yeah, so, so really, a lot of our work is uh, inspired by a great quote by Aldo Leopold that uh, touches on what you were just sharing that really, you know, his quote, we abuse the land because we regard it as a commodity. Let me start again. Uh, we abuse the land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. And really, so, so that kind of gets at what you were just touching on and, and our work at Agrarian Trust in forming this agrarian commons model is that private property ownership driven by market-based development values um, has separated us from the land. So we need to form a new relationship to the land and that requires new structures. So moving land out of private ownership into a community-centered commons structure ownership is important. Uh, evolving our value of land from market-based development extraction speculation interests to a value of land for all that it produces and sustains. Uh, and you know all those things we hold as important in agriculture and a regenerative farm, 
we need to hold those as the values in the land for the land supports that farm. And yet there's a disconnect. We value land differently. So the need to transform and evolve our values of land to align with our, our ideals for agriculture and food production and human connection to land is important as well. So really it's in the United States, it comes down to legal structures of ownership and how tenure and equity are conveyed within those. Mm. And now I know there's probably some people who, upon hearing concepts like returning land to the commons, might think or like bring up some sort of communist ideals or socialist kind of propaganda. But there's a long history of land being held in the common and being used by entire communities. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, that there's right. Really, there's there's a long history across the globe of land being held in the commons, and really, what the commons is is a shared community that is responsible for stewarding, managing, and holding those natural resources. And that happens all the time. That you know, we in this country enjoy uh, from national parks to local community parks. Um, and, and those are a commons-based asset. Um, the structure that holds and manages and stewards those is different than, than the agrarian commons that we are proposing in the United States and that many other common structures around the world uh, enact. That really a common structure is bringing about that community stakeholder uh, priority as the lead in the structure, as opposed to a governmental structure. But really the, you know, holding land as an asset for a defined group is something we do all the time and have examples of across the country, local to the towns we live in, to, you know, national scale of, of parks we receive. This is just recentering who has equity and who has tenure, who those decision-making stakeholders are. And all right, so let's start to break it down now as far as what your organization, the Agrarian Trust, and all of sort of the little subsidiaries that kind of work as part of it aim to fix among these problems that we just addressed. Um, Let's talk about now how all of this land that is about to change hands because of the age of the owners and, and many other reasons First of all, what would happen if it doesn't go into some sort of community trust? And where are you trying to direct it in order for it to become more of an asset to the community? Yeah, so really, you know, we're seeing where farmland is going already in the United States. Uh, Many European countries have uh, banned international investment and ownership in land. Uh, We don't in this country. In the United States... Uh, we, we now have about 25 million acres owned by international investors. Uh, so that's one class that's acquiring farmland as farmers age out. Uh, we also have a lot of pension and retirement funds uh, that own a lot of farmland in this country. Uh, so that's another sector that continues to acquire more farmland as they have the capital to do so and benefit from the market-based appreciation in land. So they, you know, they align with the system working the way it does and, and they're owning more and more farmland. Uh, farmland investment entities 
some for social good, some for financial returns, some for a mix have cropped up over the last 10 years. They're also acquiring more farmland. Um, and a lot of farmland is, you know, region to region, but a lot of farmland across this country is being developed, uh, being extracted from, and being acquired to speculate on future development and extraction from. So that's that's where a lot of the farmland is going in this country. And, and that's where it um, has gone and will continue to go forward. Really, the 400 million acres of farmland is, is significant in size and, and needs um, a thousand models and, and kind of a cultural awakening and transformation in, in a value for how that land is owned. It, for there's, there's really not one um, solution or one structure that is gonna solve a transition of 400 million acres, but really the goal needs to be uh, how do we uh, counter some of these other ownership stakeholders who are moving in and are primarily owning for financial returns? And so explain now the sort of the structure from the agrarian trust and how it works with the agrarian commons and other things like faith lands that your organization kind of works in conjuncture with in order to make farmland accessible to people who do not have the money in order to go and buy it, but who are enthusiastic about supporting it through stewardship and supporting their local communities with the food produced. Yeah, so we, we agrarian trust are a national 501c3 land trust. Um, there are uh, several thousand conservation 501c3 conservation land trusts across the country that um, primarily own land for natural resource benefits and hold conservation easements on farms and other privately owned property. Uh, so there's a lot of conservation land trusts across the country. Some are national, some are local, some are international, and, and we agrarian trust are one of them. We're a conservation land trust, but we feel that the importance of ownership, tenure, and equity tied to land is critically important and underserved. That is where we focus, and that we also feel that land uh, has great power and leverage and control, and that we, as a national nonprofit organization, should not be holding that, that we shouldn't be the owner of this land. Really, uh, we need to support the recentering of this land and community. So having those beliefs fitting into this conservation land trust world, knowing that there's also a community land trust uh, culture and organizations across the United States, um, many fewer, several hundred though, um, but knowing these two kind of land trust models exist in this country and, and having that belief in where land should be held, we national agrarian trust felt it was important for us to both kind of communicate out all I'm sharing and we're talking about now, and really that uh, manifests through our, our lands work, where we host workshops and presentations and symposiums and 
uh, publish a variety of media to convey out the realities of land transfer and, and the need to reconnect in a new way. Uh, we, we then support and initiate stakeholder communities as well, um, feeling that there are other stakeholders who also value land ownership, equity, and tenure as well, and, and may not be getting served by conservation land trusts or community land trusts that don't focus on ownership, equity, or tenure on farmland. So we you know, want to support and want to bring about stakeholder communities. So that manifests in things like faith lands where we bring together faith leaders from around the country who have a connection uh, to land and, and a reality that faith communities are also um, facing demographic challenges where they're losing their communities as they pass on and age out. And the faith communities in many cases are finding themselves with with unfilled seats on Sunday and unfilled buildings and unused land that they have and wondering what they will do as their communities continue to shrink and realizing that uh, they're going to have to let go of a lot of the properties they have. And they also at the same time are, are um, awakening to the connection to the stewardship and care of that land they have and its connection to food security, food sovereignty, climate issues, and, and many other things. So helping uh, faith communities think through and bring about transformation in ownership, tenure, and equity on the land they own uh, is that initiative. We also have an agrarian legal network to support the different initiatives and all so help develop model uh, structures like the agrarian commons model. And, and so really what the agrarian commons model is, is it, you know, it builds upon the awareness work of our land and it supports these stakeholder networks that we have, creating localized community-centered uh, land-holding structures that are nonprofit 501c2 agrarian commons. And these 501c2 agrarian commons are located across the country. They have uh, localized boards that are made up of farmer leaseholders who are on the ground, community stakeholders, and then agrarian trust. They uh, own all the farm land and farm assets in that region that they operate in. And they convey then 99 year equity building lease tenure out to farmers so that it centers the ownership, equity and decision making within these individual agrarian commons. Um, and we've developed 10 of these. We've incorporated 10 across the country at present time. And really each of these agrarian commons, you know, is similar in ways I describe. And they're similar in, in those structure. They're also similar in farming practices and stewardship and priority on uh, regenerative, chemical-free food production, agriculture, uh, equity building leases, secure tenure, these different components. Uh, are aligned uh, principles they have, but then they're really unique to place. So uh, a, an agrarian commons in central Maine that is focused on the Somali Bantu community 
uh, and their food sovereignty needs is distinctly different than a, an agrarian commons in West Virginia uh, partnered with a county there and an incubator farm to bring about uh, agricultural enterprise self-sufficiency in a post-coal economy. So it's really getting at the needs of place and how it's connected to agriculture and how if land is held in community and the equity is centered in community in that way, that uh, focus on really financially viable and, and operationally sustainable agriculture can take place um, however it is needed in that location. And so the boards look different the land holding, the, the kind of purposes and goals look different, but there is these unifying factors as well. And so that's the local agrarian commons is where all that kind of control decision-making and equity sits. And then we agrarian trust support with those other initiatives that I mentioned and also support in, in that we're, a, we're the kind of uh, parent 501c3 entity um, in that each of these 501c2s is a land holding affiliate local nonprofit of agrarian trust. So we as agrarian trust that parent 501c3 provide a lot of the administration, uh, back office, communications, structural supports to each one of these agrarian commons. Uh, so, so they can really focus on holding the land, conveying lease tenure, and bringing about viable food production in community. And that the kind of nonprofit operations and structure can sit with agrarian trust. See, I got to say, like, I've been in touch with a lot of nonprofits and sort of NGOs around the world. And one of the things that I've always sort of struggled with them is that, you know, when they apply to such a broad area, oftentimes the sort of one size fits all solution is not really solving any single one because of all the nuances in any given place. And it's one of the reasons why I really was excited to reach out to you is because as this sort of parent organization, as the agrarian trust supporting the agrarian commons, and these are their sort of, uh, I guess, configurations of nonprofit and community-based models around the country, it opens up for an extremely locally relevant and customized version that is specifically addressing the community and the issues that they want to sort of focus on while giving them the freedom to reorganize it in a way that suits their specific context. And, and it's, it's a really, I think, admirable model that allows for that, that single organization to offer support in a way that addresses, you know, the national context that you're in, while supporting the nuances of the given place where the things are actually located. And for those of you listening, I know it can be a little bit difficult to understand all of the, the different legal qualifications or classifications that you just mentioned there, Ian, but you've got some really good infographics on the website that I'll be sure to add links to in the show notes for this show that make it a whole lot simpler and you can kind of see it through the diagram. Um, but with that said, how does it sort of look like on the ground? Let's say, let's give a scenario, like I'm a person who is really excited about doing something in farming, but because of my personal assets or lack of asset or access to loans or other types of capital, it's not at all realistic for me to either really 
rent through conventional means or own farmland. Give me some idea about someone in my situation could go and start farming through the assistance of one of these organizations. Yeah, yeah, and and really, so this, right, each of these organizations is unique to place, and, and at the same time, it, it's unique um, in providing an array of options. And, and so we were really, we Agrarian Trust, were really strategic in in what local agrarian commons and what partners and what farms to engage with because our our goal is is really to create a model that transforms how we connect to land and hold equity and tenure and, and to do that we're not going to do that alone hopefully we inspire others and and hopefully our work also has ripple effect to it so really for that to happen it has to be relevant community to community as we're touching on, but it also has to be relevant for those different stakeholders and actors at play. So just as you say, kind of what does it look like on the ground for farmers? And, and the answer to that is that across the, so we incorporated 10 local 501c2 agrarian commons and, and we have uh, option agreements to acquire 12 farms to then seed the work of those agrarian commons and are now kind of in the stage of fundraising and that due diligence side of things. But of those 12 farms, to give context, 12 farms, three of those are retiring farmers where they've they've been on the on that farm operating um, regenerative food production, deep stewardship of land for their whole life, um, in, in one case, multiple generations. And, and there, they've conserved their land with conservation easements in the past, but they value soil health, food production, regenerative practices, no chemical use on the ground, uh, community engagement, things like that, that conservation easements and land trusts don't get at where this model does. So they you know, for them as exiting farmers, it ensures their legacy. It allows their their lifetime of work to be the foundation for the next lifetime of work. And, and that in itself helps build culture. And, and so them being part of that is, is a wonderful um, reason why and justification for why they're they're kind of engaging in this model. They're also for them, uh, several of these exiting farmers are able to retain life estates and live on the property. So a new farmer comes on, there's other house on the property, the new farm and farmer are able to carry forward, but the uh, elderly farmer is able to retire in place and see their legacy live forward. So that's really of interest to them and it allows them to, you know, people need, uh, dignity and equity and exiting farmers need that to sustain retirement and health care and living expenses. Um, but in many cases, they don't or do not want uh, to get market value for their property. Their goal is to create this legacy and afford retirement. So, you know, financial sale and caring for this legacy is a real interest for those exiting farmers. There's also mid-career farmers who are interested in, in that right, just as you touch upon either there's uh, two mid-career farmers who presently don't have land security. So they have a successful businesses, 
um, that are doing well, but they don't have they don't own land and they don't have any long term lease security in land. So they might lose the land they're on um, at the end of the season or you know some other time that the work in Maine that we're partnered with in the Agrarian Commons, they've had to move four times in the last six years because they don't have land security. So, you know, the, the need to move and not having land security prohibits soil investment, uh, e ecosystem regenerative practices, animal agriculture as a whole. It, there's all these things that are limited when you don't have land security and you also are not getting equity and all these other components. So that lack of land security is uh, the justification and motivation for some of these farmers to seek this model is that they, you know, they have a good business, but they don't have the land through this model. They would acquire 99 year leasehold with equity building um, components to it. So they'd have land security and what they're, then they'd be able to invest in the soil and animal agriculture and infrastructure. And those investments would be there at, that they would be able to recapture as they exit. So that's a you know, great benefit for those that don't have land security. Um, there's other mid-career farmers who have land security, who have a good farm business, but are crippled by the debt of the land. And the land, in these cases, there's three farms that fit into this, that these three farms, their farms are conserved with conservation easements. So it's lower value. It's works with conservation land trusts, um, but these farmers have still had to acquire the land at a market-based price, restricted by easement, but a market-based price that is well above what, what their farms are able to provide. And, and two of these three farms are 600 acre plus farms that are some of the larger diversified whole diet organic farms in the states they operate in. So they're successful, multi-million dollar annual uh, revenue farm businesses and the land debt is crippling them. So they're not able to invest in, in the stewardship. While they own the land, they, they don't have the money to invest in stewardship and soil health. They, they have to put off you know, infrastructure improvements or management just to service this land-based debt. So there's several that fit into that. We're moving from owning the land and paying a you know, a market-based mortgage to a national lender uh, who, as soon as you put the check in the mail, it's gone, it never circulates back to the community, uh, and trying to service that mortgage-backed debt compared to holding a lease, no longer being owner, but holding a lease that is affordable uh, because we base the affordability on, on what's the farm's business and what can they afford within their budget, not what does the market demand, because the market is unjust. So what they can afford in their business becomes lease rate and affordable. Uh, so they have an affordable lease rate that they're paying that. So it's a significant savings and benefit to their cash flow in that regard, and they're paying the lease rate to the agrarian commons that they sit on the board of and are a part of, and they're part of deciding how that lease rate revenue collected gets reinvested in the farms held by the commons. So instead of giving you know more money than they can afford to some Bank of America uh, nationally, they're, they're able to provide an affordable amount into a community-centered common structure that then 
recirculates that money back into the farms. So it's of great benefit to them financially, spiritually, land health-wise to those mid-career farmers who, who own the land and own the business, but are just scraping by now. And scraping by, it, the reality in this country is that those, those farms, two that I described that are the 600 acre plus uh, several million dollar annual businesses there, they fall into what USDA would define as a mid-size farm in this country. And, and those are the farms that are, they're selling at farmer's markets, they're, they're selling at other you know, uh, markets that, that feature local goods, they sell at restaurants, they sell at CSA and farm stands. So they have a diverse stream of where their products go. They're, they're the farms that are really feeding the community, these mid-sized farms. And over the last 12 years, uh, 37 mid-sized farms a day close in the United States. Every single day, 37 mid-sized farms are closing. Um, so, you know, that financial model is crippling. So the reality of transitioning out of ownership and that land-based debt that is crippling and closing farms to this structure of leasehold within a commons uh, can really transform uh, the viability of these mid-sized farms that are owning the, the whole equation. And, and then really the kind of the other farming interest that comes to be is new and beginner farmers who, you know, are, may have started a farm business or may have interned or apprenticed or uh, have some experience farming, but don't have a longstanding business and don't have land either. Um, that this model uh, provides opportunities for land tenure, uh, both as kind of individual farm to, to acquire land tenure and be your own farm business, to land tenure in layered enterprise, internships, employment, apprenticeships at these other active farms, um, in that you know, some of the farms are in this generational transfer, some are in this mid-career state, and some are really fallow land needing a new farmer. So there's really a space and need for all types of farmers and, and kind of benefits to this model for them. Um, and, and really the other part as a whole that all farmers benefit from in this model is that farming is, is a um, depressing and lonely and uh, high stress business that leads to some of the highest suicide rates in this country. And uh, many farmers will, will share that it's, there really is not a social network of support or resources of other farmers. And, and so what we're doing with the agrarian commons model is all of these farms are aligned in farming practices and beliefs around stewardship of the earth and, and community engagement. And these farms are across the country and these farms are now part of uh, these local agrarian commons boards that are made up of stakeholders connected to farms who can be supports and resources from, from attorneys to marketing to other farmers to land use to you know, nonprofits to um, finance uh, food systems. There's all different kind of experience and organizational partnerships created where each of these farms and a new farmer coming in um, can benefit from this agrarian commons network of farmers and other aligned stakeholders to really be a 
a supportive resource for learning, for training, for you know all of the above. That's amazing how broadly it applies given all the different situations that farmers are struggling at the moment. And it sounds like perhaps because farmers represent such a relatively small demographic as far as the workforce in the United States, that perhaps all of these crippling issues have gone unnoticed. But it's really sort of this silent tragedy that is going to have extreme downstream effects as it starts to play out in the, the food security of our country. Yeah, it, it does. And it's, you know, there continue to be kind of the impacts on the small and mid-sized farms. Um, and again, really to focus on these mid-sized farms, because smaller farms, in many cases, it's a, it's a hobby farm or a part-time job, or there's someone else who has off-farm income. Um, and that's not to say off-farm income doesn't exist in mid-sized farms as well, but but they're, you know, it's smaller, and, and if if their small farm closes, uh, it may not be as big of an impact. Where the mid-sized farms, you know, their their livelihood, their connection to land, uh, their you know their their life's work and investment into this land is all tied to maintaining a financially viable business. And if that can't happen, then right, the the kind of loss of land of these farmers and then the significant aggregation of food system into more and more the you know larger uh big ag and big food businesses that are you know disconnected from land and or people take over for the mid mid-sized farms so right part of it is that that the you know the number of farmers is so small as as you mentioned so you know we don't hear about that much and there hasn't been much context in the national narrative about agriculture or food systems until recently in the pandemic now it's awareness is building fortunately but it, but it hasn't been part of the national discourse at all agriculture really at all um and, you know, part of it is because there's so few farmers as part of the total population. But part of it also is that that the, you know, the food systems narrative, the the kind of regenerative agriculture and kind of typical farmer narrative that we do see in advertising and commercials is is funded in many times by that big corporate ag and food systems interest that is aggregating mid-sized farms as they go to business. So, you know, the, what we do hear about is, is the, the victor of, of the um, loss of small farm, small and mid-sized farms. So how does managing the land through a trust sort of incentivize better land management and ecological stewardship. I know you mentioned that a lot of people who are getting into this model are already motivated by those things, but by having land security and a community support structure that incentivizes these things, how is it starting to promote the way that people are actually managing the land? Yeah, well, a couple of ways. So you know, really, it, it's a combination of things. And right, one is touched upon is, is, you know, as we found the agrarian commons building this cu culture of aligned values, so that, you know, the human side and the culture helps to sustain and build this care of land and regenerative farming practices. So that's, 
that's critically important and, and that's built into the structure and, and why we're working with the farms we are. Um, but really then it's, it's a combination of other factors. One is the, so we, the trust, uh, because we're creating these affiliate entities and, and it's a real balance of kind of individual local control and autonomy and identity with some larger national kind of aligned vision principles goals. And really so that the work that the trust does is to ensure through the bylaws, through the lease, through farm and ecological stewardship standards. So these structural documents, uh, we make sure those define and require uh, certain practices and certain land care and certain agriculture take place. Um, so, you know, that helps. Uh, we, we also um, are able to, you know, all of us collectively bring about different resources where, you know, outside of this model, if, if you're looking at a farm, a private farm on its own, it, it's that private farms requirement or mandate to run a sustainable business and to care for the land and, and operate their agricultural enterprises um, in a productive and you know, sustainable way. Um, it, it all sits on their shoulders, uh, you know, whether that's a family or individual or some business entity, but that farm is responsible for the stewardship and ecosystem care of the earth and also for the farm's business viability and everything else attached. There's, there's nobody else at the table to uh, be uh, a responsible committed party. It sits on the farm. Where in this model, what we've created is a multi-leveled structure, all with responsibility and, and stake in the whole. So from agrarian trusts, the 501c3, to a local 501c2 agrarian commons to that leaseholding farmer on the ground like there's a shared responsibility on stewardship and care of the land and ensuring farm viability uh, and and that shared responsibility is in you know the same structural documents that i described they they call out responsibility for each party and it's also in that because of each of our entities type is different. It allows and makes available different flows of capital to support that entity. So for example, where a farmer, individual farm family may not be able to get a, a grant uh, from, from a foundation to support the work, but agrarian trust can. So, you know, for example, we, uh, a on the ground project now around stewardship is that we agrarian trust the 501c3 through a partnership with the Patagonia Foundation uh, receive grant support to engage in some stewardship practices on the ground some um, soil regeneration and some pollinator habitat creation uh, projects and and so you know we were able to bring the the capital forward the um, it's working with two agrarian commons. One of those agrarian commons also had a local funder who would support that commons to bring additional capital forward. And then the farm is using their, their human capital to match that financial grant capital in. So, you know, each party is, is investing something to improve the soil and bring about a, a 
several acres of pollinator habitat across these farms. Um, and that, that is the case because there's these multiple entities interconnected to the land. So it doesn't uh, solely sit as a burden on the farmer to also be the steward of the land. And so how did these practices and these setups help to address the inequity of land ownership in the United States? Well, so the, the, these practices and standards do not help to address the inequity of land in the United States. Really, the, you know, the way to address inequity of land in the United States is to critically look at and take action around who owns land who has tenure to land and who has equity in the land. So, you know, these, these structures do ensure that whoever holds a lease is generating equity in the land. So they get at that third point, but really before any of these documents and structures could come to be, um, for us to, as an organization, a growing trust, to focus on bringing about uh, just land-based justice and racial equity, uh, we need to ask ourselves, what land are we focusing on and what farmers are getting least tenure to this land? Um, because those are the critical things that will transform equity. And you know, that's, that's our work and, and the questions we have to lead this work forward, but that's really the any other person or organization who has a focus on land-based justice needs to start at uh, critically take, looking at and taking action to change who owns the land and who has tenure in the land, because that's where the injustice starts. Right. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. What I meant more was uh, through some of these subsidiaries like the Commons and the, the different organizations across the country who are helping people gain access to land, they are sort of specifically addressing minority communities or people who have traditionally been disadvantaged or, or not included in the assets of land-based equity and wealth in this country, but have played a huge part in the prosperity of the land or working on it directly, finally get access to building equity through their own labor in this way. Is that really just dependent on which of these and their focuses on the communities that they serve are? Or is this kind of an essential part of the mission of the Agrarian Trust is to try and bring in more people and more representation of the people who work and have traditionally been uh, like I said, excluded from land-based equity to participate in this? Yeah, that's, that is a primary focus of the work is, is right to, to really um, focus on people who have been excluded and marginalized from the land. And at the same time to equally focus on the land that has been exploited and extracted from. So, you know, um, and at the same time to honor, uh, individual nature of place and community. So, you know, um, we're, we're not trying to bring about uh, land-based justice by inserting uh, uh, people into a community that they do not want to be part of or fit into. We're engaging in communities that um, are excluded and marginalized from the land, and we're engaging in communities that have been uh, 
victims of having their land exploited and extracted from. Um, and, you know, so one commons to the next, it, it's going to look quite different, but all have that kind of underlying priority, you know, that are, are kind of this country's uh, industrial revolution and urban expansion uh, exploited and extracted from West Virginia and, and Montana significantly and turned both into, you know, barren wasteland and Superfund sites in locations in both of those states. So, you know, the need to recognize and uh, work specifically in those areas to bring about land-based justice is important. Um, the, the fact that uh, Maine is the least diverse state in the country, and here's uh, almost 14,000 Somali Bantu community members living in Auburn, Lewiston, Maine, with uh, food insecurity rates of 52%, um, you know, focusing there to bring about food security and food sovereignty for the Somali Bantu community uh, to highlight the gross inequities in racial uh, injustice in Maine and land-based justice is critically important. So each, each commons has kind of a story like that as to how it lives into that, but each is quite different than the next. Like we're, we're, we're not trying to take a, you know, a broad brushstroke and say that all these commons should, should have a, you know, a racially diverse board that looks like X. We're trying to say that each commons should address a land or human injustice that exists in that location. Sure. Yeah, no, and that's remarkable because it does look so much different in different areas. And I guess that leads me to ask, what are some of the biggest barriers for achieving the goals of this project right now? And what are the things sort of standing in the way of acquiring more land or, I guess, promoting this to communities that could really benefit from it? Yeah, so really it's financial capital. Uh, so, so we wanted to uh, create this structure and the model, which we did. And we also wanted to lay out this uh, opportunity of what this could look like. So, so we've done kind of all this groundwork of forming these you know, 10 agrarian commons, they each have local, uh, the board seated. So they're, you know, operating with a seated board. Uh, there's these 12 farms that are now uh, under contractual agreement, uh, where, where we now need to raise the money and acquire them. And then in bringing about those land transitions, um, you know, that will cultivate more work in and of itself. Uh, one, just as awareness builds from that, um, there's a lot of conversations and new opportunities that are developing for additional land and for agrarian commons. Uh, there's uh, more, we, we had two of the 12 in the mix were already land donations to begin with. The rest are all some type of discounted sale, but we had some donation amount. And now since we've launched the Agrarian Commons on May 1, there's several additional farm donations in discussion and in process. And really so, you know, the more we can do to manifest success of this model, the more we can raise awareness and compel people to engage and get a proportion of those landowners to donate land uh, and other partners to help bring funds forward. But really it's raising the 
capital needed to acquire these farms presently and is is the sole barrier in the way everything else has been kind of set up to be operational and successful um we now have two years to raise the capital to acquire these farms uh we took ownership of the first uh, farm this past December. We now have a fundraiser going. Uh, we started 27 days ago and have raised $250,000 from 1,200 donors towards the next farm's acquisition, which we need to raise. We're at 250,000. We need to raise 367. So we're we're moving forward towards that fundraise. Um, We'll be rolling out other public fundraisers. We also have a mix of um, philanthropic foundation grants, uh, partners, conservation easement funding, other structures for these projects, but really it's for everyone to, to engage and support uh, this work with financial capital is what's needed. And uh, this present fundraise, the average donation is $144. So it's, you know, it, it's something that is accessible to many people to donate and engage in this uh, work and support this transformation. And really for, for some, for, you know, a, a number of people, it's also possible to support each one of these projects as they come about o- over the next two years, uh, you know, to give $144 to, to each of the um, 10 more that will come. But really it's it's the financial capital and raising awareness to help others to support with financial capital as well. So where can our listeners go to donate or to help to support this effort and learn more? Yeah, so really um, just going to agrariantrust.org. And then right along the front of there, there's a banner of the Agrarian Commons launch. And then uh, that'll take you to the Agrarian Commons website. And you can explore that. There's a few simple tabs on the top that, that um, you know, give you options to donate, to learn more, to uh, find out about the farms and communities and Agrarian Commons and, and to get a lot of content and details. Fantastic. Well, Ian, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time to explain your organization and your work. I hope we can catch up again in the future. And I would love to keep an eye on how this is progressing and moving forward from here. Yeah, thank you, Oliver. It was great to talk today. Likewise. All right, let's stay in touch and I'll catch up with you again soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.